Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Whisperer here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Michael Gordon, and glad to have you uh, with us on the show this morning. If you're listening live out there on the internet or tuning in later to the archive program, either way, we're happy to have you uh, present here and listening to today's topic, which is titled Taming Aggression, Cultivating Calm, the Path to Nonviolence. Uh, very topical in the news this week. As last Friday, there was a tragedy in New, uh, Newtown, Connecticut, uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. There was a massacre of, uh, I believe the final count was 28, if I'm not mistaken, including the aggressor and um, his family. An absolutely devastating event. And it brings to uh, the forefront the issue not only of, of gun control, but violence in our society, violence in our world. And it would be very easy to, as much as the media is ten, you know, tending to do, to focus solely on the issue of gun control and not look at the greater issues raised by you know, an event like this. First of all, we can't, we can't look at uh, this tragedy, as awful as it is, in isolation. Uh, it's something that occurs within the context of violence in our greater society and our community as, as a global um, Society, and um, it, it just strikes me that, you know, of course, when it hits close to home, and by I mean home, I mean the West. Uh, certainly, the United States is our neighbor down south, uh, up here in Canada, and um, it really strikes at the heart of our families and our communities, and and it's, uh, you know, it's, it hits very hard, um, you know, especially at this time of the year. But it, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that you know, violence takes many forms and loss of life occurs every second through malnutrition in the you know, uh, undeveloped or the, or the deprived parts of the world and um, certainly through the side effects of, um, or the direct effects, I should say, of um, globalization and, and um, you know, the expansion of capitalism all around the world and um, offshore investment and, and uh, manufacturing and free trade zones, you know, there, is, there are direct uh, impacts which result in infant mortality and um, violence and increased warfare, uh, partly through the trade of munitions, uh, small arms, uh, all throughout sub-Saharan Africa, for example, and certainly in the Middle East. 
so we, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that all life is precious and we really want to discuss this topic with that wider view of what allows us as a as a as a tribe of humanity to with our with our espoused views of humanitarianism and and compassion and certainly you know one predominant view of human rights and democracy although that's relative as you go around the world um it seems to be that these values are in direct conflict with the social and economic pressures um and it brings us back to a, a key theme here on the mind whisperer which is about the inherited evolutionary design that we have of, of the human brain it's about 30,000 years old and we still are uh an animal um in the sort of instinctual sense uh and you know we we want to keep evolving and to incorporate our instincts for survival with a higher level of consciousness and self-awareness now when bringing that all back to the topic at hand today uh just to clarify the issue um this is not also it's not also accurate to look at this incident at uh at this at Sandy Hook as aberrant behavior on the part of um Adam from me lost his last name already um um what what's his name Adam Levant um it would be a mistake to say that this was uh, uh Adam Lanza pardon me I beg your pardon uh Adam Lanza uh it would be a mistake to look at this as uh, some sort of psychopathology on his part that he was psychopathic or um sociopathic or deranged um he his as far as i understand his existing diagnosis from uh childhood was Asperger syndrome which falls on the autism uh, uh spectrum uh disorder and it's more of a developmental disorder than what well, is a developmental disorder um as opposed to um any other sort of behavioral or mood disorder now at the same time we know that uh autism spectrum disorders particularly Asperger's are coincident or comorbid with uh mood disorders bipolar disorder uh major depressive just depressive depressive disorder um and Asperger's in particular these are persons susceptible to or exhibiting um aversive social tendencies and shyness and inability to um to engage socially now this is a very complex topic and we're not really wanting to get getting into sort of psychopathologizing Adam Lanza and as a way of dissecting this event and explaining what exactly my point today is not to dissect this um for the sum of its parts but to look at the issue as a whole so in Adam Lanza's case um we know that his parents had undergone divorce apparently it was amicable um and certainly in his case the underlying um aspects or expressions lying dormant you know in his uh disorder may have become triggered but the the bigger question is um certainly access to guns and, and also the environmental factor in terms of exposure to violence and that's really where I want to bring the topic today is to this intersection between the culture of violence and the normalizing of violence 
um, in our media and, and in our entertainment, and um, how that relates to triggering these sort of baser instincts. And of course, the more susceptible you are on any level to uh, be triggered in that way, either through something that's going along psych- psychologically or psychiatrically or in terms of the social and economic pressures on you, um, we've got a, a, a huge problem. And certainly in this case, you know, this will come out more and, and there'll be speculation about the uh, stress of divorce and, and, and the internal strife and who knows exactly what was going on there in, in this family. But the fact of the matter is is that um, this child did not, um, this young man did not harm himself initially. He uh, certainly did not exhibit any signs of, as they say, um, psychopathy in terms of the early you know, signs and predictors of, of later um, violent behaviors, including you know, cruelty to animals, um, self-harm, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the outcome is very, very disturbing uh, in my mind that he, his mother was a teacher and he very deliberately in a very organized fashion uh, went to her school, her place of work, and, uh, you know, opened fire on these on these kids and in a way that was sort of vengeful. Now, this is sort of a primitive act, even though he was a young man and capable of carrying it out and conceiving and, and acquiring the weapons, etc. Um, it's still a very disturbing outcome to me that um, he went and, and took this revenge out, not only against his own mother, who was a teacher, but against young children. And uh, that could be as much as, you know, again, a personal um, insight into what was going on for him and his, you know, uh, outburst of internalized rage and um, strife within his own family. But the fact of the matter is he has an assault rifle. And this was kind of a uh, retribution in a way on the out on the surface, um, you know. And, and I look at it as not only again aberrant, violent behavior, but to an organized massacre like that to me does seem about some kind of po- act of power and retribution, albeit quite disturbed and skewed. But this brings us back to, you know, some interesting sort of psychological insights about the individual within a a violent society and the society itself. And what I want to address today, and I don't want to get too technical about this, but what I want to address is um, an aspect of neurophysiology, that is how the brain and mind work, how consciousness works and brain anatomy, and looking at that as a microcosm of society. And actually, that's a two-way mirror. Society itself acts upon that mirror of our consciousness and uh, reflects in our behavior. And so this, to me, is sort of gets away from this, uh, you know, very heated debate about the impact of media violence on the individual that, you know, somehow it's causal in one way. And then the people in the industry, even as of this morning, uh, I was uh, reading some uh, quotes from Quentin Tarantino sort of refuting the idea that, the artist is responsible for pervading um, or being the cause of, of uh, violence in society because it's actual real life that's violent and you know works of fiction are just depicting reality. But the fact of the matter is it is a two-way street. And we are um, adaptive creatures and we are, are having to adapt to our environment and we become expressions of what we see in our environment and the tools that we have at hand to cope with it or not cope with it.
So in terms of human brain activity and consciousness, um, some very, very interesting um, neuroscientific research uh, has emerged in the last, particularly in the last 10 years, but uh, out of you know, long-standing research about the function of the brain, particularly with what has been um, identified as the, the waking consciousness, your sort of consciousness at rest. This is sort of your normal, not task, um, not task-oriented consciousness, just your attention in everyday life. And it's associated with you know, daydreaming and thoughtfulness and self-reflection. And this is what's referred to as the direct network of the brain. Pardon me, the default network of the brain, or default mode network. And um, this has uh, also been labeled more recently by a researcher at the University of Toronto uh, by the name of uh, Norman Farb, um, as the narrative circuitry of the brain. So what that is, is the part of us that gets lost in thought and daydreaming and um, forecasting to the future and, and reminiscing on the past and kind of lost in thought. And it really is also the encapsulation of the story of ourselves, our ident- the construct of uh, uh, the identity of who we are. Now, this is in contrast to another network that they have uh, identified, which is basically, um, and it relates to different structures in the brain, particularly the structures that help us um, deal with sensory perception and stimulus in the moment, in the waking moment day-to-day, uh, minute-to-minute, um, how we experience things in our physical and sensory environment. And this is called the direct network. So we have the direct and the default or the narrative network. And the direct network is you know, the temperature on your skin, the temperature around in the room, uh, the sensation of the floor under your feet, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we, uh, Norman Farb at the University of Toronto was able to, uh, through his research, identify that um, the narrative network is really involved in terms of our capacity for self-reflection. But the problem is, is it kind of gets out of hand. And we get so lost in that story of ourselves that we lose... Um, touch with being in the moment, and we can, and this can, of course, really exacerbate problems like depression or anxiety, particularly when it comes to, to um, some of the symptoms of those disorders. Um, one of them being overthinking, and getting kind of into a really neurotic state about uh, obsessive thinking, and this is uh, what's generally labeled as ruminating ruminating thoughts. We've all had that where we can't get to sleep because we're just chewing something over, something that was said in an argument or something that we can't quite figure it out. And also it can be a traumatic experience. And so we are left with the replay of that traumatic incident and it heightens our arousal and our our sense of um, uh, well-being and and safety. And so this is linked to uh, that hyperarousal state or hypervigilant state, it's called, being on guard all the time, you know, links to things like insomnia and addiction and phobias because it uh, becomes this pervasive sense of not being, not, of, you know, not being safe and, and sound in the world. So you can, uh, there have been theoretical um, speculations. There's no conclusive empirical research so far, but there is research into 
how the, these uh, distinct networks in the brain affect various disorders and dysfunction in, in brain activity. For example, schizophrenia. And we can observe um, a lack of, or an over actually activity of uh, a brain, generalized brain activity that disrupts this narrative network um, in something like schizophrenia. So you're so um, misfiring or so overactive in that default network that you actually lose the the balance and the connection with the direct network, which is I'm in time and space, and this time and space is consensual with everybody else's time and space. You're just not able to engage the world in that way. So if we look at that and we look at something like um, this recent shooting, and even if we fold in the personal details of Adam Lanza, who was dealing with this, uh, an, you know, Asperger's syndrome, um, which puts him, you know, put him at uh, in a very difficult position in terms of being able to cope with um, social reality and um, all the stimulation of the world. Um, we can see how this is very problematic. And but my point is not so much how it affects the individual and that we, you know, the good people and bad people or people who are functional or dysfunctional. The point is actually to take this view of um, that we have through neuroscience of what's going on in regulating uh, a sense of well-being and um, quote-unquote normal function as an individual and to look at our society as a whole um, with the same kind of approach. And we could say that as a society at large, and I include Canada as much as I do um, the United States, I, I wouldn't include Europe at this stage of the conversation because they are there's sort of very discriminating factors about European culture that don't quite match. But for North American culture, at least, um, we could look at the aspects of our culture that are, are problematic um, in terms of rampant images of violence and certainly um, the stats around real violence in the world. And we could say that we, you know, North America, and again, particularly the United States, is very preoccupied with um, violent entertainment. And uh, because of the economic imbalances um, in, in North American society, the divide between rich and poor, um, we can put a lot of things together. You know, there's a, there's a social economic reality that um, is paired with um, the way the culture represents itself. So, for example, the real divide between rich and poor, we know statistically speaking that the poorer people are, the more prone they are to health and mental health problems. And certainly um, there's a much higher incidence of, for example, um, adult onset schizophrenia um, among the population who are living on the street or you know, below the poverty line and homelessness. So there's that aspect of uh, you know, the, the real impact in the world of of economic disparity and social pressure and economic pressure and violence. Uh, this morning I was thinking about one of the last, ironically, the last uh, speeches and the last uh, rounds of writing that uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King uh, was engaged in before he was assassinated. And he really was making this link between violence and capitalism and saying that we have to eradicate poverty. And poverty is really at the root of, of um, purveying uh, or, or uh, sustaining, you know, uh, violence in society. 
And for example, one quick way of looking at that is you know, Occupy Wall Street. So you have a different disenfranchised 99% and a 1% who own you know, upwards of 80% of the wealth in the United States, and you're going to have revolt. This is what Marx referred to as the grave diggers dialectic. Eventually, people are going to um, be so uh, alienated by their work that they have no option but to rise up because they've got nowhere else to go. Uh, this morning, we're listening to here in BC and in Canada to a, an inquiry uh, by a former Solicitor General of the province of British Columbia, Wally Opal, into um, the, the worst mass murder I believe in Canadian history, uh, which was uh, Robert Picton's uh, brutal slayings of women uh, in the downtown east side, a very poor, poorest neighborhood in Canada, mostly Aboriginal women, um, who, um, who you know, met their ill fate at his hands uh, on his on his pig farm out here in, in, in British Columbia, and it's been about 12 years since uh, since those murders. And this was a very damning report about um, the police involvement and their, their lack of coordination and um, the idea that, you know, these murders could have been investigated sooner and, and perhaps some of the deaths pre prevented. Uh, but the point of the matter being that these women are in a very, very vulnerable situation on the downtown east side, and they are uh, prone to um, being preyed upon um, because of their vulnerable circumstances, they're poor. Many of them are, you know, come from poor and abused backgrounds, and are, have lack of means and education, and uh, are, you know, uh, dependent on on uh, drugs and and the sex trade, and uh, you know, in and out of um, you know uh, risky housing situations, living situations, and so again, this speaks to um, another aspect of violence in our culture at large, that poverty and violence are linked. And certainly this isn't the case in any of these uh, shootings or mass slayings, um, but it just goes to the bigger question about tolerance. That, that our, we have normalized, and in fact, we in, in the United States in particular, um, we have raised the aspiration you know, to personal accumulation of material wealth you know, to such a high level that it really is at the level of something that I would consider um, um, pathological. And so, you know, we, we look to incidents like this and say how heinous they are and how devastating and heartbreaking they are, and absolutely they are, but they're not accidental. They're not incidental, I should say. They are a direct result of a society that's out of balance. And coming back to, um, you know, using this model of these two networks in the brain and how they can be imbalanced, I would, I would overlay that onto our society at large. Now, one uh, recent um, film, documentary, that used a similar approach was um, by Joel Backen and others, uh, uh, Mark Akbar, etc., um, uh, called The Corporation. If you've not seen this, it's the most successful Canadian documentary of all time. And it... Uh, Joel Backen was, was a law professor at the University of British Columbia, if he's not still, and he decided to look at capitalism as an economic system, uh, and the corporation particularly, I should say, um, and, uh, and attribute 
some of the uh, symptoms and um, de determining factors of a diagnosis of um, psychosis, of, of um, psychopathy, to the corporation itself. And look at the, because the corporation is in the United States, constitutionally and legally is considered to be an entity under the law. And so he decided to address this entity and say, what is the behavior of this entity and how do we look at it psychologically or psychiatrically? And he, his outcome was if you look at all the criteria, corporations are designed to run as a psychotic individual. They have no regard for you know, the general well-being of uh, individuals to society. They're driven by a bottom line profit uh, motive, et cetera, et cetera. And so we can take that similar approach and look at our society at large and say that we have become so completely self-absorbed and inured to uh, this, again, this narrative, particularly in the United States, of uh, it, it deeply embedded in the psyche of the United States is are all the um, myths that go with the underlying self-image and self-regard of freedom and independence, going back to the West and settlement of the West, uh, to the Civil War, and so on and so forth, that freedom and independence are very much intricately interwoven with the identity of being the gunslinger, the, the, uh, the armed uh, citizen who can you know, rise up against tyranny at any moment. And this is enshrined in the Constitution and the Second Amendment. So we have a problem in that not only is it psychologically embedded and in in, in culturally embedded, but it's also legally and constitutionally embedded in the United States. And no one is going to confront that, um, certainly no sitting politician, and the Supreme Court has upheld the Second Amendment in the United States. But for the rest of us, it, it really does... Uh, give pause for us to look at our daily lives and look at our society and look at the decisions that are made as a reflection of our values. And beyond the issue of gun control, it's our willingness to tolerate these, you know, very, very well-documented um, effects of our society at large. Poverty, you know, global expansion and the impoverishment um, and the underdevelopment of the third world through resources, through globalization, through corporate control, you know, the, the neglect of our most vulnerable members of our society, and so on and forth, so forth. And you can go through and and um, sort of forensically look at the effects of our society at large and say something's out of touch. That we've become so wrapped up again in the notion of materialism and and wealth accumulation that we have lost sight of the direct impact and that's having and, and probably no greater um, disconnect between the direct reality of our world and this sort of self-absorbed uh, narrative that we're in, uh, this mindset as a culture, would be the environment itself. And we tend to look at the world and the environment as something as an entity outside of ourselves, which is preposterous because there really is no separation. We're all breathing in, as David Suzuki reminds us, we're all interdependent because, simply put, we're breathing in each other's molecules all the time. We're inhaling and exhaling, fume, uh, pardon me, you know, our, our own um, um, oxygen and carbon dioxide and that of the trees and that of pollution, and so we are, we are completely intertwined. 
So the notion that the environment is some issue to handle or some topic for us to discuss is absurd. The reality is that um, we, are, we are the environment. The environment is us. We live in this universe and in the, on this planet with finite resources, and um, it can't be looked at something that, that's a topic for discussion. It's something that's inherent to our direct experience and our survival in the world. So, again, this is endemic of and indicative of, of our um, disconnect in a sort of psychological way as a society. So it's important, I think, to, again, take pause with this tragic event and to embrace the, the, the grief and the horror of this event, but to really take it in and look at ourselves and look at our own values and question our values and question our world and the decision that the, you know, the people that we've empowered to make decisions on our, on our behalf are making as an expression of who we are in our lifetime and for the generations that are going to follow us. Um, I hope I'm not coming across as, you know, preaching and proselytizing. These are just my own personal views. And they're as much informed by my own, you know, social and spiritual values as, and, you know, humanitarian concerns as they are pragmatic concerns about how we function as individuals and how we function as a society at large. With all that said, um, th this time of the year leaves a lot of people um, feeling vulnerable, and uh, especially those who come from underprivileged backgrounds or who have broken families. And uh, it's an important time to get together with those we love and, and personally um, hold people tighter and, and to love them more. And I encourage you all to do that this time of the year to appreciate the love that's in your life, the people that are in your life, and to look at the greater society as a whole uh, also as your family. And that includes the plants, the animals, everything in our world. Um, we are all one great living uh, family um, of beings. And the more that we start to connect with each other on that level, I think the more that we will evolve as a species and um, continue to a higher consciousness. And that is really what the promise of the Mayan calendar is, is the unfolding of a new era uh, rather than the doom and gloom that it's been um, proposed to be. So take care of each other. We'll see you on Thursday next time on the Mind Whisperer. Thanks for listening. Take care of each other. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. 
Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.